0: We're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900CHML.
1: Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Will Weber is on the board. Will Erskine booking the guests. In the newsroom, Dave are 67% of Canadians say it feels like everything is broken in this country. Two-thirds of Canada want less fancy socks and more getter done Hey,
2: here's Scott Thompson.
3: But honestly, I feel the pendulum swinging back. I feel Canadians standing up and demanding action, demanding results instead of gah, 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 and passing the buck. And I think we're seeing that with health care. Healthcare, you can take the same issue and apply it to whatever your issue is. Uh, what we're hearing now is big change that is coming because Canadians are speaking up and saying, I don't care who gets this done, just get it done this system is not what you say it is. It's not as great as we thought it is, meaning the healthcare system. So I think this is, I do very much think this is a turning point. Uh, maybe so, not so much in how we deliver healthcare. Uh, we'll have to wait and see what that is, but certainly in public opinion. And how people are getting tired of the na-na-na-na-na-na-na-na-na, and they want results. They want action. They want more than feel-good politics, especially when the top five issues other than health care are inflation, interest rates, uh, just affordability in general, food, uh, housing, Fuel, what have you. I mean, you know, people are finally saying this is not good enough for us. We want change. And the politicians are finally catching up. And it's going to be fascinating to see how this um, all transpires. Uh, more on that coming up. All right, David Bowie off the top. Reason number 32 on uh, Rolling Stone's top 200 singers, greatest singers of all time. Uh, there you go. And if you want to hear another one, we'll play another one. Well, maybe we should, you know. It's not like the, ba- the Bowie catalog doesn't have enough in it. Uh, so, yeah, the fallout is coming from um, the day after. The day after the big party, the big celebration, the gathering of the premiers and the prime minister. After like two and a half, three years, finally, he's granted them a, a, a meeting, and they all seem so optimistic, and then disappointed. <laughs> and at the end of the day, they're going to take anything they're going to get, but there's only like four point six million dollars more every year, billion, sorry, uh, and they were looking for twenty eight. So again, are we talking about band aids here, or are we talking about actual reform? So it's going to be fascinating to see how this all uh, floats out. Um, um, the uh, Ontario Premier and Health Minister are meeting tomorrow with the Federal Health Minister to talk about negotiations there. Um, yeah, anyway, uh, and what's fascinating is, and again, I'll repeat this, the only people that seem to be against these reforms are people who are either on the extreme left or benefiting from the way the system is already, and just say more money, more people, more doctors, more nurses, more money into the same system, which is clearly not working. Um, and, And there was somebody from the Ontario Health Coalition that I saw on the news saying, Canada is not following the Canada Health Act which is completely wrong because that would be illegal. And every one of the reforms that you hear of right the way across the country from east to west, B.C. to Newfoundland, all have to fall under the Canada Health Act, all have to follow and conform to the regulations and whatever it says. So to say that things are going to happen outside the Canada Health Act is just lies. It's just simply not true because all of these reforms have to somehow fit into the act and the prime minister has endorsed that on several occasions. So it's like enough of the po- private versus public, the US versus Canadian. That's old school talk. You can't use that argument anymore. That's like from your grandparents' day, certainly from your parents' day. Uh, interesting report from Global News' Tina Trejani on, um, uh, reaction and, and timelines from the province.
4: The additional federal dollars are being
5: proposed over 10 years. I will say that I have to look at the long term and I do get concerned when we see these 10 and 5 year deals.
4: Health Minister Sylvia Jones says these long term stretches don't offer enough stability to plan long term projects, things like new medical schools and hospitals. And she says the province is looking to build on the investments made to date. You know I've said many
5: times we have spent since 2018 an additional 14 billion dollars
4: in health care. Jones and Premier Doug Ford will be meeting with Federal Health Minister Jean-Yves Duclos tomorrow to go over the deal and get some more details. But she says the priority for the province is pretty clear.
5: Patience, patience, patience. To ensure that those individuals who are trying too hard, frankly, to access service and are waiting too long have the ability to get that faster. Tina Trojani, Global News.
3: And I think when the Prime Minister did finally decide to meet with the premiers that people were honestly expecting more. They thought that um, you know, and a lot of like the 196 billion uh there's only 46 billion of that that's new and a lot of that hasn't even been delivered yet so um you know it's fascinating to see where this is going to go and and what comes out of this meeting with uh you know the ontario health minister and premier tomorrow uh with the federal health minister uh pierre polyevra conservative leader has been um sort of on the perimeter of this discussion to say the least and he came out and very frankly said yeah i'm going to do exactly what they're going to do but frankly um you know uh, they they haven't uh, they haven't done enough to keep the uh the cupboards uh f- stocked we'll say uh here's pierre polyevro
1: and so yesterday he announced sums that are not adequate according to the premiers to fix the health care damage that have has emerged under eight years of trudeau Uh, Obviously, a future Conservative government led by myself will keep in place these additional sums and honour the commitments made yesterday. But we regret that the Prime Minister broke the Federal Bank and wasted so much money that he now cannot come to the table and help relieve the suffering in our emergency rooms and on our wait lines that have grown uh, out of control under his eight years as Prime Minister.
3: All right, so we'll wait and see if uh, these are just more Band-Aids or that we are actually moving towards some sort of reform. All right, um, I, I said this to Radley the other day, that um, it seems we've been talking more about this move I- now that it's happened than we ever did coming up to this. Nobody seemed to care at the time, and now everybody, well, geez, they're changing their name from Hamilton to the uh, Brantford Bulldogs. Is it—is it, is it going to happen that you know they may not even come back? And, da, 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 and all of a sudden, you're, oh, no, 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 no. So it's kind of there's, you know, there's more chatter now that they're going than there was before they left. And, uh, boy, uh, our loss at this point, just for a reno, coming back in three years, they say, is uh, Kevin Davis, mayor for the city of Brantford, who are obviously very excited about this. And in a yana, uh, unanimous vote, they uh, voted 11-0 to zero to uh, accept the deal and proposal that will see the uh, municipality get an OHL team for the couple of years three years and upgrades to a local arena uh mayor kevin davis is with us now kevin thanks for the time i hope you're doing well god i'm doing great but i want to make one thing clear Go ahead. We didn't. We didn't let the dogs out. Somebody
6: else did. We're just taking care of the dogs. Right.
3: <laughs> That's right. You took the dogs in. You took we the did. dogs in. Absolutely. Uh, very well put. So obviously the city's uh, pretty excited about this. An eleven to zero vote. Uh, How is Brantford accepting this?
6: Well, so Scott, I've lived here forty-one years. I've been elected official now almost eleven years. I have never seen anything like this just the enthusiasm and the excitement going permeating the entire community people that don't even follow hockey getting extremely excited and lining up and registering for seasons tickets it is it's just overwhelming i've never i've never seen anything to compare to this
3: that is so great to hear. So what can you tell us about this deal? Because obviously now uh, there's some people in Hamilton that might be a little bit concerned that they're not coming back. Uh, we've been reassured that that's not the case. But so w- how did you guys get into this? How how did this deal all come together?
6: Well, we, when we became aware in mid-November that, uh, that the Bulldogs were not going to be able to stay at First Ontario for a couple of years, it was kind of an almost... Coincidentally, they were reaching out to us. We reached out to them, representatives from the Bulldogs, and discussions began almost immediately and have continued the last two and a half months. It's been pretty intense at times, a lot of time and effort put into it here at City Hall. And we're we're just really gratified that we got it to this point where it was unanimous decision of our council to proceed. Because there's a lot Uh, of benefits to us beyond just simply having an OHL team, starting with uh, our arena and updating it.
3: Okay, yeah, let's go with that first. Go ahead. So what has to be done and, and, and what do you get out of it? And then we'll talk about costs and, you know, or the taxpayers' need for concern, any of that. But let, let's talk about the deal and what you get.
6: Well, so the arena built in 1967. And so uh, many parts of the arena need to be upgraded, such as the PA system, the scoreboard. It has to be that jumbotron-type scoreboard. Uh, probably the biggest efficiency is the home uh, the home dressing room for the home team. Mm-hmm. to that, so that needs a major revamp and that's going to be a large part of the renovations. Things also a lot of safety issues for players like we have tempered glass above the boards and that has to be plastic to meet OHL standards. because Plastic right. has more give to it. So things like that, improving the concessions, the lighting, the PA system. So a lot of it's about customer convenience, uh, but a lot of it's about
3: uh, player convenience and safety. And what is there a cost to the taxpayer with all of this? Uh,
6: there's no cost to the property taxpayer the the These costs will be probably around seven and a half million dollars. The city's putting in three million dollars, and that's coming from a fund that uh, was established when the casino was was built here about 20 years ago. Mm -hmm. And the city does receive a portion of the casino proceeds and that's put into a fund to be used only for big capital projects, this being one of them. So it's not gonna impact at all uh, the property taxpayer. That's what's great about that. Casino's actually right next door. So, you know, money raised through the casino that was been uh, held for several years now is going to be used at the building next door.
3: So let's talk about, yeah, really, that is, uh, well, you got a little, an entertainment complex there. So uh, let's talk about uh, the rink it holds, what, we 3,000 people, is that accurate? 3,000 sitting and then about 400 standing. All right, and uh, obviously that's smaller than a lot of these other arenas. Are you sure or are you confident that uh, people in Brantford or surrounding areas as well can fill this uh, every night?
6: I am very confident, and I say that, because I'll give you an example. So I was over at the arena this morning, 11 o'clock, and there were several people outside who were quite upset because the box office hadn't opened yet for them to buy season tickets. (laughs) And and that announcement was made last night, and they're already lining up. That's, I know there's been a lot of activity on the Bulldog website. I've uh, talked to a number of people in Brantford that have told me, you know, last night I was on there at one o'clock in the morning. I got, I registered for two ticket, season tickets. I registered for six things like that. So, you know, frankly, I'll be shocked if, if the, mm. if the Bulldogs aren't able to meet their quota that they have for season ticket sales.
3: Kevin Davis with us, Mayor for the City of Brantford, and of course, uh, the Hamilton Bulldogs on their way there for three years. And boy, they cannot wait to welcome them. Kevin, this is so great to hear. It's so great for your city. Uh, congratulations to you. Make the most of it. Good luck. We're going to. <laughs> Thanks very much, Scott. <laughs> Have a great day. You too. Thanks, Kevin.
0: You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML.
3: All right. Yesterday, uh, you know, because um, uh, it's what I do, uh, I thought, oh, look, the, uh, the U.S. president's going to give a State of the Union thing. Maybe I'll sit down and watch uh, a bit of this. That's the kind of life I lead. And then 73 minutes later, I was still there. Uh, Was he on fire? Uh, Let's bring in Brian J. Karam, political analyst for CNN, White House reporter, columnist for Salon.com, the Washington diplomat, host of Just Ask the Question podcast, and author, Free the Press, The Death of American Journalism, and How to Revive It. He's here now. Brian, thanks for the time. I hope you're well.
1: Doing well. How about yourself, Scott? Doing Okay.
3: (laughs) So far, so good. You know, I I thought he was quite entertaining last night. I've talked to you before how sometimes he seems a little sleepy. He seemed to be up on the wheel last night.
1: He was. He That was one of his better speeches. In fact, I've been covering a State of the Union address since Reagan era, and I think that was among the best.
3: So, um, uh, first of all, he, he I want to g- repeat some things that he said. And what I find so fascinating this, because obviously we compare, uh, Democrats, to liberals, conservatives, to Republicans up here in Canada, although because we have a three party system, it's a little different. However, I'm, I'm listening to Biden say, creating manufacturing jobs, manufacturing electronic chips, building infrastructure, roads, and in, uh, whatever, uh, Um, We would never have seen or heard our prime minister uh, talk anything about this. He even talked about the blue collar rebuild. What is
1: that? Well, he's talking about restoring the middle class. It's one of the big things that attracted people to Ronald uh, Reagan and Donald Trump was the fact that they felt like they were ignored. And it, you've got you. You have to understand that he, Biden grew up in a middle class, working class family. He's going to support unions and support the middle class, knowing full well that you build an economy not from the top to the bottom, but from the bottom to the top. And so that's his. That's that's been central to his preaching since he first became a public official. And so it's not unusual to hear. Nor was it, you know. Nor did it fall on deaf ears. Many of the very people who supported Donald Trump will like what he had to say last night.
3: So, is he bringing things back to the center?
1: I think he is. Yeah, definitely. He's you know he's a centrist. He's not a, a whacked out you know woke as they would say whacked out woke liberal. Nor is he you know the far right. He's right, pretty much smack dab in the middle of most social issues. He's he's probably more. <laughs> He's more grounded than Donald Trump and most of the GOP. I mean, if you watched it last night, you saw how he baited and handled his hecklers pretty well, uh, smiling at him at one point and getting him to concede that they're not going to put Social Security on the chopping block. So, um, yeah, he's a centrist and he also has a sense of humor. And last night he displayed quite a bit of energy.
3: Uh, talk a little bit about the heckling, because it was interesting. I was noticing over his left shoulder, the new Speaker of the House at one time was, you know, shh, shh, sh- sh. he, he was almost giving the shush uh, to some of the heckling. But talk a little bit about that. Uh, the normal players were front and center.
1: Well, the fact of the matter is Kevin McCarthy can't control his uh, his children. I mean, they're feral children that were being hushed by him a couple of times, and he couldn't do it. And that was fine. <laughs> Biden owned him. I mean, he he got uh, Marjorie Taylor Green, who had like a dead white poodle around her neck, dressed like she was Zsa <laughs> Zsa Gabor or something, and and she's screaming, and yelling liar, and he just kind of laid her out. And uh, that kind of that kind of did it. it. Was refreshing to see an adult in the room as president, and it didn't just extend it to, to him. It was uh, one of the things that you didn't get to see, but if you were there, you got to see was. Um, Mitt Romney kind of putting George Santos in his place, telling him to quit acting like a fool and to sit down and shut up. Uh, There was a lot of adults in that room last night. It was quite refreshing compared to the, the rantings and ravings of feral children that we've had to deal with over the last four years in Donald Trump. Uh, we've
3: talked many times about the divisive nature of politics. Now, and just you know, it's happening in in here, uh, up here. It's happening down there. It, this seemed to be, or, or certainly, he was trying to 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 find common ground. He was trying to unite. He he uh, he seemed to be trying to forge or, or, or blaze that trail.
1: Yeah, that and that is you know he has said that with even the opponents of the United States. You, you know, we're in competition, not conflict, with. China, but we will stand up for ourselves, etc. He always is searching for how to get people to work together. And that's kind of what you want out of a politician instead of making enemies out of everyone. And, you know, and just jump. it's very easy to preach hate and and fear and warmongering. And that's what Donald Trump did in spades. This guy's up there going, hey, look, let's work together. I'll work with the new Congress. And you have to I mean, it was his last. Call that his, you know, when he at the end of the night, when he was saying, Because the soul of the nation is strong, because the backbone of the nation is strong, because the uh, people of the nation are strong, the state of the union is strong. And as I stand here tonight, I've never been more optimistic about the future of America. That's a great way to end it, any speech. But, you know, as divisive as this country has been over the last five or six years, to end that speech that way was was uh, something that, you know, it was very hard to counter, and, the you know, the Republicans couldn't counter-program it very well. He threw up Sarah Huckabee Sanders, who said that, you know, today it's all about crazy and sane, and she's right, but she's crazy.
3: Um, is this uh, a prelude to an election campaign? It seems oh, yeah. more people, more people are talking <laughs> about that today.
1: Yeah. I mean, at the end of the night, when he's saying, you know, the fight is, is still on or, you know, let's finish the job. Well, if that isn't a, a rallying cry, I don't know what is. I mean, at the end of the day, that's exactly what he was was saying is, uh, you know, let's finish the job. I'm sure that's going to be the battle cry when he announces for reelection.
3: Uh, something that stood out, and uh, we're talking about up here in Canada today, is his comments about construction products having to be made in America—lumber, steel, what have you. Your thoughts on that? I- is he meaning you know North America? Is he meaning America? Because um, that had some people uh, concerned up here.
1: Well, th- those are raw materials—steel and 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 wood—and of course, it doesn't. You know, we're not going to stop buying timber from Canada, nor. Steel. What they're talking about is putting the construction, putting th- that actual, instead of building things uh, overseas, particularly in China, and shipping them to the U.S., build the infrastructure needed to, to build the uh, chips and the heavy machinery here in the United States. And, of course, it would be with, you know, in cooperation with, with our partners in Canada. I mean, you're not going to be, there's no way in, in God's green earth that we could do all of it all by ourselves. Who's going to be our biggest trading partner? Or it's going to be who our biggest trading partners are now. It's But what's going to happen is, if he has his way, is a lot of the stuff that you see you know labeled made in China will not be labeled made in China. It will be made in the United States. So it's not raw material he's looking for. It's the middle cra- class jobs to assemble like he was talking about. I believe it was in Pennsylvania and and Ohio, about building the microchip companies and, and, you know, having 7,000 to 10,000 jobs. That's what he's talking about is uh, assembling those things here and moving the manufacturing from China to the United States.
3: Uh, What about the balloon fallout? Only got about 30 seconds left here. Your thoughts on how what all transpired there?
1: I'm not a balloon expert, and I was amazed to see how many people suddenly were. Um, they all, they all offered their opinion at the end of the day, the DOD had a discussion about it. We, uh, they decided to shoot it down on Wednesday. They decided to bring it down over open water so it wouldn't endanger anybody. And, you know, cause you can imagine if he had shot it down over land and it killed a couple of kids on a playground in Iowa, what kind of grief he yeah. would go through. So I think they handled it well. They said that I spoke with the DOD people and those in security, national security who said, that they made sure that it didn't transmit back to uh, China. They didn't tell us how he did that. And they're going to try and, and pick it up. Remember, it's the size of three city buses, just mm. the, the the you know the machinery underneath the balloon. So they're going to have to try and they're trying to get it, bring it in, decipher what it is that they were doing with it, and then we'll go from there.
3: Brian J. Karam with us, political analyst for CNN, White House reporter, columnist for Salon.com, and The Washington Diplomat. Brian, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. You too, brother. Talk to you soon.
0: When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. Top... 900 CXM.
3: All right, we've talked about this before. National security officials drafted a warning for Prime Minister Justin Trudeau and his office more than a year before the 2019 federal election, alleging that Chinese agents were assisting Canadian candidates running for political office. uh, According to the Privy Council document reviewed by Global News, uh, written by the Office of the National Security and Intelligence Advisor at the request of Trudeau's Chief of Staff and arguably the most trusted aide, Katie Telford, the document called Memorandum for the Prime Minister was also provided to the Privy Council office clerk. While the document is neither signed nor stamped, its high-level importance, or sorry, its high-level indicates that it is an advanced draft. Sam Cooper is with us. You can read his story on the Global News site and is with us now. Sam, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well.
4: Doing very well, thanks
3: before we get to this sam i can't I, I have to ask you about the situation in regard to the surveillance balloon that uh we didn't realize this till after it got to montana but it came through alaska went through the northwest territories into british columbia through uh, alberta and then out the bottom of saskatchewan before it ended up in montana and before anybody even heard about it what are your thoughts with all of this
4: My thoughts are there was a a Washington Post scoop yesterday that said that this is a People's Liberation Army weather balloon, uh, sorry, spy balloon, suspected of uh, being part of a vast fleet of Chinese military intelligence balloons that have been circling the world literally over five continents, collecting intelligence. So that's what we know so far. And, uh, you know, my thoughts are, since I've been following this file in Canada for years, Really, this this only fits with what I've been reporting and what uh, others have been reporting about so-called Chinese police stations now rolling out across the world. Uh, we I've reported that the RCMP is investigating these in Canada. The fears are that Chinese secret police agents are are using these stations. To uh, conduct espionage and intimidation in the Chinese community that 's another form of on the ground intelligence collection and of course my uh, my stories for global news since November are about a much deeper infiltration into Canada 's political system by Chinese intelligence networks than was ever before uh, you know uh, suspected or believed by even you know a lot of experts on the issue so it all fits and I would say that it 's starting to indicate that tensions are Around China's intention to retake what they call their own province Taiwan others many others uh, uh, say it's a, of course a democratic nation things are ramping up towards a, uh, what could be a very very uh, dangerous conflict between the free world and China over Taiwan in the coming years.
3: Uh, we now know RCMP looking into these uh, police stations uh, in, in Vancouver, in the Toronto area and such. What do we know about that? When will we know more?
4: Well, what we know since we have reported in December about uh, really the first public raid or search on one of these police stations in Vancouver uh, is that the RCMP are, are, are conducting uh, what we understand are innovative investigation techniques. They're questioning uh, high-level individuals that uh, my reporting and research indicates would be connected to the political interference networks I'm reporting on. We have no charges or arrests so far, but I can tell you, Scott, that uh, uh, my colleagues and and, and the sources that we talk to close to the investigation say that high-level suspects have been interviewed, uh, uh, alleged victims in the Chinese Canadian community c- have come forward. And I'll tell you this, Scott, uh, I, I, I've heard from a uh, you know, credible uh, complainant that, that points to someone that I was investigating in DC casino money laundering as an alleged uh, runner oh, of a police station. So this is serious stuff. No charges yet. But again, all indications that this connects into the political interference story I'm covering.
3: Are we paying more attention to this? It seems that the government has changed its tone. Uh, uh, you know, um, uh, and we're finding out obviously that they were aware that they were assisting. China was assisting candidates running for office, but the prime minister has constantly said he wasn't aware that anybody was getting any money. Um, it, has that tone changed? Are we looking at this a lot more closely?
4: I believe uh, in Ottawa, certainly over the past few months, uh, no one can deny that this is a very uh, prominent uh, debate now, for the first time ever, really, that you know whether Canada needs to be taking high-level legal reforms, such as those seen in Australia or the United Kingdom, to have a, a real foreign agent registry, to have uh, new laws that would make these modern forms of interference, uh, which is different than espionage, uh actually prosecutable and so uh certainly the opposition and and uh, also the ndp uh uh, 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 mps have been pushing the government and saying how deep does this uh, story go in ottawa and uh and will you uh institute a foreign agent registry so it remains to be seen but i i do expect that our story today will only uh and uh, and necessarily ramp up the needed debate
3: Uh, And uh, we only got a few seconds left. China's reaction to this new scrutiny?
4: China's reaction, uh, whenever I have reached out to them, is a, a firm denial. They claim not to be involved in interfering in other countries' affairs, but uh, certainly, I don't think it, uh, this is not my, just my opinion. These denials are looking more flimsy by the day when we consider the PLA spy balloons, uh, the one that was shot out of the sky by an F-22. Look, they're up to bad business around the world and they're increasing their activity is what my Canadian intelligence and U.S. intelligence sources say.
3: All right, Sam Cooper with us, investigative journalist for Global News. 2017 memo prepared for PM warms of Beijing election interference. It's on the Global News site. Sam, is always, fascinating stuff. Thanks for the time. Be well. Thank you. All right, we are still seeing just horrific images coming out of Turkey and Syria as uh, recovery efforts continue in the aftermath of an earthquake, uh, 7.8 on the Richter scale, that has uh, literally just brought uh, brought buildings down where they stood. Is now the deadliest seismic uh, seismic event in ten years. Let's bring in Dr. Frank Futen, structural geologist with Brock University, and with us now, Doctor. Thanks for the time. I hope you're well.
7: Yes, thank you. Uh, thanks for inviting me.
3: So, Frank, your thoughts on what we have seen and just the level of destruction. Uh, is this typical of something that measures 7.8? What are your thoughts?
7: Well, the destruction always depends on where it is, and this is in an area where people live, and uh, seven, se- anything above 7, 7 to 8 magnitude, is actually fairly rare. There are only about 10 to 15 of those per year on the entire globe. Um, so it's pretty devastating when the big one is 7.8, and then there are aftershocks at 7.6 and many, many other aftershocks. So it 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 really is, um, yeah, it's quite devastating.
3: Does the does the effect feel the same wherever you are? And the reason I say this uh, Frank is that you know when you, when you're seeing footage you see areas or blocks that have literally come down and then something sitting right next to it that still stays standing. Does that say more about the strength of the building or how these quakes are felt?
7: Uh Probably both. So you know, some buildings are are built better and possibly newer with better seismic codes uh, than the older ones. But the the ground also varies. If you have uh, if you have, for example, a lot of waterlogged soil, when you shake up the ground, that essentially liquefies and it it completely uh, makes buildings collapse. So the the ground that the, that the building is built on makes a big difference. The more solid the ground, the more solid the structure is linked to it. and chances are you, you don't have uh, you don't have any secondary effects. Whereas if it's in soil, um, you know just imagine shaking up a slurry of something and then it just right. goes away.
3: So obviously, depending upon the type of ground that the building is built on, it greatly affects, uh, its durability and such. I guess the question I'm asking is, could you feel something on one side of town or one side of the street that you don't feel on the other? Would it be a different experience? Or is it just shaking the heck out of everything? And depending upon the buildings and what sort of soil it's built on depends on what happens. Is the effect the same?
7: With a 7.8, you're gonna, you're gonna feel it many, many kilometers away from the epicenter, no matter what ground you're on. Um, yeah. You know, that's fairly devastating. Uh with a little one like we had in Buffalo with magnitude four, yeah, you may or may not feel it depending on where you are. Um but but when you're when you're above seven, those are called major earthquakes. There is really no escaping it. <laughs> You talked about uh,
3: 10 or 15 of those around the globe uh, in any given year. What regions, what areas are most prone to this? You talked about the one in Buffalo, which was sitting around uh, four-ish under there, uh, obviously a, a minor compared to what we're seeing with the seven. Uh, what are the differences in, in two areas? Where are those prone regions?
7: Uh, pretty much most of the high earthquake prone regions are located along plate boundaries. Because while well, we don't think of the plates moving in, in human time scale, they do centimeters per year. Um, and that particular earthquake is on a major plate boundary uh, that is basically a strike slip boundary, very much like the uh, San Andreas Fault that you're probably more familiar with. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, so those tend to boundaries tend to have the, uh, the devastating larger earthquakes. In fact, if you looked at the map of the Earth and just looked at the earthquakes per year and there are millions of earthquakes per year, they would pretty much nicely outline the plate boundaries that we have. Are
3: earthquakes related to volcanic activity in any way or vice versa? Uh,
7: they can. Oh, both so volcanic activity is most often also associated with with the edges of plates uh usually um plates that are that are subduction zone where part of a slab goes down into the mantle or where plates are coming apart where we have rifting where we bring magma up from the mantle uh strike slip faults like this one uh tend not to be too associated with uh with volcan with with volcanism unless there's something else going on um once you
3: get a quake in a certain area does that mean pressure is relieved and that area is safe for a period of time
7: um to a certain degree yes uh this this earthquake basically the the part that ruptured was about a hundred kilometers long. So there you're releasing a lot of pressure. The, the, the displacement along that rupture was about four meters, 3.8 meters, according to the latest calculations. Um, so you've released the stress on that, but, uh, those boundaries are composed of many faults. So by releasing the stress on the big one, you're building up the stresses on the little ones and, uh, and that's why we have all of these aftershocks. They're probably not on the same fault, but they're on adjacent faults uh, faults that are running at angles to it. Um, so, we will unlikely see another earthquake in that spot off that magnitude for several hundred years, but, but there are lots of other spots where earthquakes could occur along that boundary, mm. because we've seen them, we have them, just not of that magnitude.
3: Dr. Frank Futsin with us, structural geologist with Brock University, trying to explain uh, what has happened uh, through Turkey and Syria and what we're witnessing on uh, news coverage right now. Uh, Frank, thanks so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. You're welcome.
0: Take care. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML.
3: All right, uh, obviously uh, as we talked at the beginning of the uh, global pandemic, uh, our healthcare system, uh, lots of faults, needs improvement, needs a rejig, uh, can't keep doing the same old status quo, we've heard all the lines and obviously the Premier is trying to get with the Prime Minister to have some sort of uh, uh, meeting on this, that finally happens yesterday and it seemed pretty optimistic going in, although the money certainly isn't what the province is expected um, most are saying we'll take what we can get i guess the question here is are we really talking reform here or is this more band-aid solutions let's bring in dr Kerry bowman bioethicist and assistant professor in the department of family and community medicine university of toronto and with us now carrie thanks for your time hope you're well
5: very well indeed
3: So a lot of anticipation for this and uh, maybe a little disappointment coming out the other end. What are your thoughts after all of this preamble and then what we have?
5: Yeah, you know, my thoughts are are the thoughts of disappointment. And, you know, I don't think I'm alone with that. I I think a lot of Canadians are are feeling the same. Um, You know, so much of this conversation, um, you know, with these negotiations has revolved around money, money and money. Those three things and and. Really, you know, we know from the many experts and look, I'm not going to count myself in as a as a healthcare structural expert. I I may work in the field, but, um, you know, what we really need is a different architecture. And and of course, we need some increase in money, but we really need a different structure. And Mm. and what worries me about this is all this political maneuvering really doesn't deliver anything um, to the people that need it the most. And look, I'm going to sound very very cynical when I say this, but, you know, the people at the table trying to solve this problem are the the very same people that have not been able to solve this problem over a long period of time. So we really, really need some new thinking. And what I worry about is that, you know, the people of, of Canada, of Ontario and the many vulnerable people in this country really get left behind and their voices are just not part of this in any way, shape or form.
3: Um, It seems that um, uh, the public has changed and is leading this discussion rather than the political leaders. As you said, the same people are trying to solve the same old problems, and we wonder why we end up in the same place. Uh, I don't even think this would be addressed unless the people and the public's backlash uh, is what it is. And clearly, the public has said, we don't care where it comes from, we just want this fixed.
8: Yeah, we do. And that,
5: that's why they're meeting and that's why it's happening. That's the same reason with yep. the airlines and everything else. But, you know, is anything changing? That's the problem. Um, you know, it's good that they're meeting. And I, I'm trying not to be cynical. I'm trying to think, think of some positives. And, you know, in fairness, the federal government has said, you know, things need to happen if if this money is forthcoming. You know, we need greater, you know, health care within the community and, and, you know, long-term care, et cetera, et cetera. But unless I'm seeing, missing something, I don't see any really solid checks and balances in there as to how accountability is going to work. And, you know, the federal government saying this has to change and that has to change, it's still, you know, the provinces are the ones that are going to have to, you know, restructure a lot of this. And, you know, it's just so difficult. And it's hard for me, you know, after decades of working in hospitals, you know, seeing this level of dysfunction, it's always been there, but it's never been this bad. And, um, you know, it's very sad. I do wish the voices of the people were more present. And I I wish that, you know, as part of these negotiations, you're exactly right to say that that's why they're at the table, because the people are at the end of their rope. But, you know, why can't some of the people be at the table as well? Because, you know, all of our elected leaders just seem to end up in the same place they started
3: from. So initially the provinces said they wanted $28 billion. They ended up with uh, 4.6, which many would say is is a great disappointment. Do you think the lack of money being handed over by the feds is is going to force that reform? Because to me it, it appears there's two, way to, two ways to handle this. Either you keep putting way more money than what we have good money after bad and keep hiring more doctors and more nurses into the same old system or you actually make reforms. Is the lack of the the money going to then force the provinces to make those reforms which in a lot of cases as we've seen is using private uh, delivery services and such through the public dollar Um, are we going to see more of that because there is less is that the idea here we'll give you less that forces you to make reforms
5: it may be the idea that you know and if it's the idea it's sitting below the surface but i don't think that Mm. Will be the case i don't think that that will make reform i mean what we need in this country is, is you know we've got to get away from a completely hospital-based not completely but an essentially hospital-based healthcare delivery system um, we need far more community uh community health um and and you know we really need every canadian to have the the ability um to have a family doctor if he or she chooses to you know, we're able to find schools for all of our children. Um, we really, mm-hmm. as we should, by the way, we really need a structure like that, and that's one of the things that's really driving it. And you know, there's many very clever people uh, that have many great ideas on healthcare reform. They're not particularly at the table, though. That's that's one of the problems. So I, so, I, I, I realize how negative I'm being here, and I'm sorry for that. But I, 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 you know, we, I'm just not seeing it on this one at all.
3: So does this come from, uh, obviously, uh, the health is is a provincial jurisdiction. Uh, Does this come from the provinces and they're on their own to figure out what this reform is? Or is this something where the federal government should provide more leadership on all of this to sort of set out what direction that we're going in? Because obviously the provinces don't want to be dictated to. So where does that new reform come from?
5: And, you know, the answer to that is somewhere in between, because, you know, nationally, federally, we, we really have to ask the questions, which I think we're probably fairly good at asking, is, you know, what are our values as Canadians in relation to health care? And I think we're pretty on on the page with that in terms of equality, in terms of access. And that's something worth fighting for. But the problem solving has to, you know, has to be shared by both. What, the, you know, the risk with the latter of what you're saying, or maybe it's the former, I'm losing track, of, but, but, you know, that you would have every province and every territory territory with a radically different system um, I don't think that would occur but it really has to be something in between those two things and you know where the feds could really help is, is coming up with you know modeling and, and and you know really really clever insights and look I, you know Canadians are not we have to look to countries that there's no country on the planet earth that doesn't struggle with health care and you know if you say there is it's not true but there's countries that do better and often they're the Nordic countries, not all of them, but you know, Norway particularly. Like we really have to start looking to very different models of delivery and trying to figure this
3: out. Uh, we always seem to, when we're having these debates, it always uh, ends up breaking down to public versus private or U.S. versus Canadian. Are those arguments old school? Is, should, is that from decades ago? Because we already have a combination. And as you're talking with certain other models, they have a combination of both as well. Is the pr- public versus private, is it time to put that discussion to bed? Because we have a combo already.
5: Yeah, you know, I'm not fully qualified to say that. But the literature that I followed on that, you know, the private often looks like the perfect solution, whereas it's really not. And most of the evidence suggests that it's not. And and most of the people that know most about the system say that that won't pull us out of this. Um, And, you know, private does have a way of taking over systems. If you look at what's happening in the UK and things like that, especially now that they're spiraling into crisis. I mean, their healthcare system has such an equality. Um, and those those don't sit well with Canadian values. But you know, they, there could be, be there could be certain models, not so much in delivery, but there could be some form of partnerships that are going to be effective. So I don't think our biggest problem is the universality of healthcare. It's it's the overall structure of it. And mm. um, you know, I, again, we're just not meeting the needs. When you look at what happened during COVID to to senior citizens within Canada and the amount of older Canadians that died. And the amount of work that the long-term, you know, the the, the amount of help that long-term care needs and community health and community outreach, we we really, in a lot of ways, know what needs to be done. We're just not doing it.
3: Dr. Kerry Bowman with his bioethicist and assistant (laughs) professor with the Department of Family and Community Medicine, University of Toronto, talking about the meeting between the premiers and the prime minister on Canada's health care. Kerry, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. Very welcome. Take care.
0: Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer. He'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML.
3: Let's bring in Marvin Ryder, professor at the Groot School of Business, McMaster University, uh, watching U.S. President Joe Biden's State of the Union address last night. And, um, you know, you're kind of watching it and in, and in, in such. And then all of a sudden, Canada, well, not even mentioning Canada, but certainly buying America, right. putting America first and. specifically buying construction materials that are american-made we talked to uh, uh uh michael cram earlier on in regard to this white house reporter and he said what he meant really was they're not buying any more stuff from china we'd be silly to ignore our biggest trading partners let's bring in Marvin now professor at the group school of business mcmaster university marvin thanks for the time hope you're well Glad to be with you, sir. And your thoughts on the talk of uh, buying American and such? As I said, we were talking to somebody down there, and they said, no, they're more more or less referring to China, not the trading partners in North America. What are your thoughts?
8: Yeah, I'd agree completely with that. Uh, So The speech last night, the State of the Union, was really designed first and foremost for the people in the room, which is the House of Representatives and the Senate, uh, and Biden is trying to get them on board to be, quote-unquote, bipartisan, meaning even though I'm a Democratic president, I want to bring ideas forward and I'd like you to support them so how does he do that Uh, in some parts of his speech for instance you heard him say that he wanted to spend more money on education include maybe a junior kindergarten or even a pre kindergarten level and then maybe include spending for four years of college or university whatever it happened to be wow you know that's not a really popular idea with the Republicans Mm. so how do I woo them back oh I know what I'll do I'll say buy America buy America buy America Mr. Biden has said that from the first time he was elected President. Uh, so for the first two years, we're now into the second two years. Uh, however, c- the correct interpretation of buy America means let's not buy from China, let's not buy from India, let's not buy from Russia. And really what he's saying is buy in small voice North america and as was seen just last month with the three amigos summit down in mexico you know he wants north american prosperity but in that crowd at that time you don't want to split hairs and try to define things so you play to the populist and you say buy america buy america buy america
3: i was surprised to hear him use the term blue collar rebuild you just don't even hear that up here
8: yeah, well, that was the Trump audience as well. You might remember that Donald Trump you know, won big in places like Pennsylvania and Ohio, in which I'm going to bring the jobs back. He was very popular in West Virginia, where he said, we're going to bring back coal, and coal is going to become the engine. And so when you're playing politics, you, you play to your audiences. Now, when he says they're going to rebuild the blue-collar worker and that sort of thing, I, again, I think what he's trying to say is the modern version of the blue-collar worker. Right. Uh, and again, I don't want to sound like I'm being, uh, you know, derogatory here. But the the steel industry of Hamilton today is not the steel industry of the 1950s. We might think of people who work at Stelco and DeFasco as quote unquote blue collar, but they're running some very high technology processes in making steel. That's actually how they make so much steel with fewer workers than they employed. 30, 40, 50 years ago. So uh, it's the new version of of this and and central to that for instance is the car industry and the electric cars, let's make sure we're up to date on those things. But what he was implying is on uh, his infrastructure bill, if we're going to build new bridges, if we're building new highways, if we're building new airports, let's try to make sure we're using as much as possible American products, again, quote unquote North American products in there. And so I'm not really losing sleep over from Canada's perspective.
3: Uh, A lot of chatter, too, about manufacturing uh, chips and using some of those traditional industrial areas to do that. Can America uh, revamp this industry and be a big part of it?
8: Yeah, again, the answer to that is yes. Uh, Now, why he was talking about that was that Congress, at the end of the last term, like in November, a few months ago, passed a bill specifically to recharge the chip building industry, get more chips made for the computers that we use in the United States, rather than bringing them all in from Hong Kong or Taiwan or mainland China. And so I think he was doing that to sort of pat Congress on the back. Thank you for supporting me on that. This is the benefit of that. I got a few more ideas like that, I'd like your support on. And if you're watching the body language, uh, Kevin McCarthy, the Speaker of the House, who's a conservative sitting behind him, kept shaking his head. No, yeah. I'm not going to do that. No, I'm not going to do that. So it was an interesting uh, public display of speechifying. We'll see what's down the road.
3: I think it is exactly what you just said. It was quite entertaining in that respect. Marvin Ryder with us, Professor at the Group School of Business, McMaster University. As always, Marvin, thanks for the time. Be well.
0: I will. Thank you. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML.
3: All right. Uh, yesterday, as we know, the much anticipated meeting between the premiers and the prime minister on health care uh, finally happened. Uh, the prime minister said ahead of time that there wasn't going to be a deal, that, you know, this is just a chat. And then it turned out it kind of was. Uh, and instead of the 28 billion that uh, the provinces were hoping for, they got about 4.6 added to what they already have. To talk about all of this and where we are now, and is, are these band aids? more band-aids or is this actual reform let's bring andrew mcdougall an assistant professor in canadian politics and public law with the university of toronto and with us now andrew thanks for the time i hope you're well always a pleasure so a lot of anticipation heading into this meeting yesterday uh premier's a little disappointed i guess you know that's obvious i'm sure not uh, not many thought they were actually going to get everything that they asked for but certainly substantially less what are your thoughts on this meeting it took so long to get finally uh, uh uh organized and put together what are your thoughts on the outcome was it anticlimactic for you
9: uh, well, to be honest with you, this is kind of the way these uh, meetings tend to always go. Which the yeah. provinces always arrive saying that they need more money from the federal government, and that um, you know the healthcare system, uh, you know, is 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 really creaking because uh, you know all of the lack of resources. And the federal government, of course, coming back and saying, "Really, this is your jurisdiction. Ultimately, this is your responsibility." But we're here to help, uh, and let's just fight out around the uh, the details. But it's always uh, it's always a bit of a food fight, and and this is kind of what we're uh, what we're seeing here uh, as we usually do. So is this
3: reform or band-aids? Um, because many are wondering how far this is going to go. I mean, obviously this all falls with under uh, within the Canada Health Act. I mean, everybody has to abide by this. So, uh, who how, do you, in your mind are we reforming here, or is this more of the same?
9: Well, it's a very complicated question. At the end of the day, healthcare is a provincial responsibility. So, if there's going to be reforms, it's the, the province is the ones that have to do it, and they're ultimately the ones that are at the hook for for the funding. Federal government uh, really all they can do they've got more money, but and and. and all they can do is really fund it, but they can't do a whole lot more than that. So, in these types of situations, you always see a little bit of blame shifting going on between the provinces, saying, "Look, the federal government—we need more money to make real reforms," and the federal government's the ones that got that. And the federal government coming back and saying, "Look, this is ultimately—you know—in your—in uh, your jurisdiction. And while we can help you with some some money, if there are problems, you ultimately have to get down and 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 do the do the hard work on that." So it, it's it, it's confusing, I think, sometimes for Canadians to see this, and you can sort of see it. From both angles. Um, but I mean, I think everybody agrees that work needs to be done on the healthcare sector. But um, whether or not, uh, you know, that's actually going to happen is, is obviously a complicated question. And you'll have to wait uh, and see what they come up with. The, the fact, Andrew, that it is less money than what the provinces thought
3: and substantially less. Does this put more pressure on them from the feds to actually
9: reform? Yeah, I, I mean the um, there I've never really seen the provinces ever say that you know it was more money than they were expecting. They're always going to come back and say that that more. Yeah, really? <laughs> got no, take take mean, some of this they, back. We've got too much. <laughs> yeah, I mean you, you you'll never see that in any of these these meetings, right? So I wasn't particularly surprised by by that at all. And the federal government knows this and is aware that um, uh, that that's what ultimately the the line is is going to be. Um, I mean, at the end of the day. Canadians don't really care that much. They want their healthcare system to work and they want to see uh, both orders of government working to put that together. And both orders of government know that as well. So uh, Ottawa wants to be seen as being helpful, as being providing sufficient funds, but understanding that they're never going to be told that, you know, thank you so much. This is more than than we were expected. And the province is always going to be pushing for more, even though they, I mean, they have taxing powers too. If there's more money necessary for the healthcare system, they could raise taxes as well uh, if that was politically something that they wanted to do, but they don't. And so they're going to try to get as much out of Ottawa uh, as they can. You said
3: people don't care. Canadians don't care where this comes from. They've just—they're now made aware, uh, post-pandemic, what kind of shape our our healthcare system actually is in. They just want to see results. I think this is a discussion that's been pushed forward by the public, not by politicians. Um, And when this happens, we always get the debate: uh, public versus private, U.S. versus um, uh, Canadian system. Is that an old argument? Is it time to put that behind us? Especially that the majority of people don't care. Um, and it seems that it's a combo of both. So why do we keep having that argument?
9: Yeah, it's not a new debate. Um, Canadians have been arguing about uh, the level of uh, privatization they would they can have in in the healthcare system really kind of forever. And I mean, to be fair, there is uh, a level of of, of yeah. care that we have anyway uh, in the system. Um, but uh, healthcare has been something of a third rail in Canadian politics really forever. Yeah. That you know, if you touch it, you kind of die politically. It's it's very very important to Canadians. It ranks very very highly on their on their priorities. That's and because and politicians- the
3: public. That's because Canadians wanted it to be kept public. But now that attitude seems to be changing as they as they're
9: seeing that it's not
3: performing the way that they fought so how does that change things
9: well, I'm not totally sure that it does. I mean, the, the argument has always been there from a lot of people that we need to see more private care to make it more sustainable. Uh, I don't know if it's really a new thing that's that's come along. I mean, it's, it's something that pops up around these discussions um, whenever they're held right, about whether or not we can go that way. But um, there's very, I don't think there's much political reward for pushing uh, privatization of the public system out there. And I think although uh, you can see people trying to do it, it's the kind of thing I would you know, wait and see and I would want to see actually happen before uh before buying into that line um how much
3: reform can be done under the canadian health act in other words uh, many people are in opposition or complaining it's going too far to whatever i mean it, it, at the end of the day everybody has to abide by those rules underneath that umbrella isn't that accurate
9: well, if they want the money. So, I mean, yeah. the Canada Health Act is the conditions for the money, but the federal government can't change the system, the provincial systems. Those are all yeah. provincial jurisdiction. So if the provinces wanted to, for example, walk out of the talks, they could. They could say no to the money, and they could go fully private if they wanted to do mm-hmm. that, but they just wouldn't be getting uh, any uh, any federal right. government uh, money from that. So, I mean, the, the reform options you know, have always been there. It's just really – you know, it's, it's the politics more than anything else that we're seeing here around that. so have has the public
3: perception that has changed removed that third rail
9: uh i'm not uh, i'm not convinced i haven't seen any polling you're not sure yet shift on this yeah i mean i think i know that because we're
3: already uh, seeing polling andrew that says that people you know like over 60 percent want this change people have had enough of this
9: uh well i mean if uh if they see the politics there and they go for it then then they will um but this has been a pretty basic uh, program, and for uh, healthcare has been pretty basic as a political issue in Canada since it's been rolled out in a very popular one. Uh, I think a move towards privatization is risky for anybody that wants to try that. Um, I mean, if they if they want to give it a shot, go ahead. But uh, I think that uh, they it's probably a good idea to think twice, uh, notwithstanding whatever a poll might say. But I might be wrong on that. Maybe, maybe there's been a shift on this, and, and there's more of an appetite for that. But I'd be very interested to see what that looks like if, if they started to implement that in a substantive way. Uh,
3: Andrew McDougall with us, Assistant Professor of Canadian Politics and Public Law with the University of Toronto, talking about the meeting between the Premiers and the Prime Minister on health care. Andrew, thank you for the time. Be
9: well. Once again, always a pleasure.
3: All right. As we know, yesterday, the much-anticipated uh, meeting was held between the premiers and the prime ministers. The premiers, uh, for two and a half years, trying to get the prime minister to come to the table and talk about some sort of new reform, conditions, what have you. Um, the majority of the Canadian of Canadians just want to see this uh, get fixed and just want it moving forward, as opposed to around and around in circles, which obviously it has done for decades. Uh, to talk more about all of this, Daniel Perry with us, consultant Summa Strategies in here now. Daniel. Thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Same to you, Scott. So your thoughts, Daniel, on this uh, much anticipated meeting? Did uh, Did it have the ending? Did it have the finale, the climax we were all hoping for?
2: Well, it really depends who you ask. If you ask the prime minister and his government, they said they will say that they delivered for Canadians once again and everyone should be happy. But if you talk to the premiers. They're a little bit more grudgingly agreeing that, yes, this was good, but they will always take more money. I think, as most things when it comes to the government, it is the devil is in the details. So, premiers across uh, Canada are currently mulling it over. So. I think it depends who you ask, in short.
3: Uh, many are talking about enough Band-Aids. Uh, it's clear that this needs to be fixed. We can't keep doing the same thing, the status quo, whatever phrase you want to use. Uh, at first blush, is this are, are we seeing reforms, or first steps to reforms, or are we seeing more Band-Aids?
2: Uh, We're seeing a lot of money get dumped onto the problem, which is something, Scott, you and I have talked about before being a concern. But I think this is a step in the right direction. Unlike previous investments into our healthcare system, there are going to be very specific strings attached in terms of how this money can be spent. So if you're in the state of if the great province of Quebec, uh, if you're looking for a tax cut like you got last time we had healthcare reform, you won't be getting it this time. The government has done, to their credit, a very good job of making sure that this will be targeted and this will be focused on actually actually reducing barriers in the healthcare system that we're currently facing. Uh, It's
3: interesting that, and again, we've talked about this for decades, but it seems, and many have said that, you know, to politicians, healthcare is the third rail. You just don't want to touch it, all of that sort of thing. But it seems that all of this movement is not because of politicians. It's because the public is finally fed up with this. The public finally realizes what they've been bragging about for so many years has fallen far short of what their expectations were uh, or are. Um, Has public opinion changed on this? Is that the reason we're... We're seeing the movement that
2: we are. It absolutely is. Canadians, we used to brag about how great our healthcare system is, especially when we were talking to our Americans across the the way there. But now it's kind of becoming a bit of a laughing stock. We're spending so much money on it. We're just not getting results. So I think Canadians, to be frank with you, are fed up. And I think COVID really sped that process up. And that's why politicians are acting this time around. It's because they know people are mad. People are dying. And this is not the Canada that... We know and have loved, So I think, yeah, Canadians are mad and politicians are, again, doing their job and listening and getting some action on it
3: is is healthcare becoming a catalyst for all of this i mean um it seems that that uh obviously the public has spoke up about health care changing traditional thoughts and such do you think this is a shift in general where the public has finally realized they've been sitting on their hands and watching other people drive the bus and not necessarily uh, happy with the direction it's going and are now speaking up does is this the public reacting is this them changing direction of politics
2: I would say it is. I think during COVID, we saw our healthcare system be pushed to its limits. And that was the first time a lot of Canadians experienced the challenges within our healthcare system, whether that was inability to access ventilators, having to take over parking lots, they become field hospitals. I think Canadians really saw firsthand the shape that the healthcare system was in. And we collectively agreed that that's not what we want in Canada, that's not what we're gonna stand for. So we're gonna make a lot of noise until the government listens and the federal government has listened and now it's the province's turn to do the same and work on a deal to make sure that we can address some of the backlogs we have, uh, have doctors uh, for families be available and have staff in hospitals. Can we still use the argument
3: private versus public, U.S. versus the Canadian system? Because it seems we have a combo of, the bo- of both. We've already seen that many examples of that. Uh, it seems the opposition is, is just we need – the only way to fix this is just hire more people, more doctors, more money uh, into the same old system over and over again. Um, and, and the debate about whenever we've, we've tried to, to make any sort, of, uh, uh, any sort of gain on this, the, the debate always goes you know, to, to private versus public and such – Have we finally grown up and gone past that, that this discussion is a lot more advanced than just private versus public? We're already there.
2: I think we're getting there, to be honest with you, Scott. I think what we're seeing a lot, especially with how the prime minister is carefully dancing around the questions mm. when he's asked about Doug Ford's approach to the healthcare with opening it up to private clinics, I think you're seeing some recognition within the government being like, there is a place for private healthcare, but we don't want to be the ones to say, yeah, it's a good idea because right. our agreement with the NDP might go out the window because they would lose their minds if if the government said that. So I I think we're seeing a bit of a progression into the territory of being reasonable and understanding, seeing that the private sector is able to provide care, but I don't think we're gonna see all political parties come out and say, wow, what a great idea. Let's have more of that
3: um is is the whole thing about this going private and money going to the wrong areas a a red herring because at the end of the day this all has to fit under the canadian health act mm-hmm. it all has to fit under the conditions that the provinces have or sorry that the the, the feds have have dictated i mean they want to see more do- uh, doctors and nurses they want to see a database etc cetera, etc cetera, which is really what the opposition is yelling for maybe minus the database it's more doctors yeah. and nurses or such um your your thoughts on on, on, is this still an active argument? Do, do, does the opposition need to come up with a better plan if they want to make hay out of this?
2: I think they're going to have to start making a better plan because the money is going to be out there. And unless some... Premier falls and hits themselves in the head and can't get any hospital care. I don't think they'll be saying no to more money from the government yeah. to address these problems. And I think the government is right in in adding those strings because, like mm-hmm. we saw last time, Quebec gave tax gate took the money and gave tax breaks to those citizens, and that's not really what the money was meant for. So I think looking to modernize the system because the system that we're using currently is not working uh it's old and it's outdated the fact that we still use fax machines and for your younger listeners you can google what a fax machine is They're not very common anymore so i think being able to move into the digital space will not only help quality of care but also help the speed we can get access it not to mention having actual data so we can compare provinces and see who's doing well and have lessons to learn from that so we can kind of help everyone in canada get better care
3: Obviously, the prime minister meeting with all of the premiers. Uh, much was said about the handshake between uh, Alberta Premier Daniel Smith <laughs> and the prime minister. Uh, your thoughts on that awkward moment?
2: Uh, I don't know if you can even call it a handshake. Maybe the prime minister should try fist bump like he did during COVID uh, with <laughs> his ministers. Uh, I, I, it's just one of the, it's, it's it's a sideshow. I don't think it really matters. It was almost like she was scared to touch the man because she mm-hmm. knows if she touched if she shook his hand. She might get some blowback in the next election because the Trudeau brand is not as popular as one might think out in Alberta these days. It's not very good to be tied or to have a photo with him. So I think she was just just being herself in that situation. Does this express
3: the tensions that are between the two?
2: Uh, It puts a really good visual to the tensions That were always in the air and now we actually Can kind of see it a little bit more Look, the Alberta government has a lot of bones To pick and it started with Jason Kenney uh, And it continues with Daniel Smith So uh, the hostility between the two I don't think is a surprise to anyone
3: Daniel Perry with us Consultant Summa Strategies Talking about the healthcare meetings Between the provinces and the Prime Minister Daniel, as always, thanks for the time, be well
0: Thank you, take care You're listening to the Hamilton Today Podcast from 900 CHML.
3: All right, let's bring in Scott Radley, host of the Scott Radley Show, coming up after the 6 o'clock news. You can read him in your Hamilton Spectator. He's here now. Scott, thanks for the time. Hope
10: you are well. I am. Hey, that song that was just played, great song, Jay Giles Band. Would that song get made today?
3: that's a great question uh, yeah. you know it's funny because i was playing i've been playing songs to open the show off of rolling stones top 200 singers of all time and i played hank williams the other day and it was hey good lookin what you got cookin how about making something good for me and i'm thinking yeah i'm not sure that one would be re-recorded today
10: I, I, you could you could probably go through half of those songs that were on the list and find something that somebody would be offended by now but then again, you know, uh, rap,
3: hip hop—you could probably say the same there too. So oh, you, know. you think I was going to, intercut-
10: <laughs> I was going to intercut and say that you could definitely make centerfold. You just have to rename it "my girlfriend's an Instagram insert insert, <laughs> <laughs> insert yeah, some derogatory t- term here." And yeah, that too, because no one knows what
3: that is. But my gr- my girlfriend's a TikTok babe, something like that.
10: Yeah. yeah, yeah. I don't know. I just, as I say, it's it must be so hard to write lyrics now because you know someone's going to be offended by something. <laughs> It's so hard to do anything now. Well, that's everything's per- broken. No, I'm kidding. All
3: right, uh, your thoughts on the fallout of the healthcare meetings. Now we're sort of digesting more and finding out that the $28 billion is only $4.6 billion. Uh, Are these Band-Aids? Have we got more Band-Aids, or do we actually have reform here? What are your thoughts post-fallout of this meeting?
10: Uh... I mean it was never – even yesterday when they first heard the number, everybody or at least all the premiers were all saying this is not what we were expecting or hoping for or wanting. And it's – I mean look, it's – we have become so callous to what a billion dollars is with a B. Because over the whole term of the whole time of COVID, we're throwing around fifty billion, hundred billion, a two hundred, like we we've completely lost any kind of sense of what a billion dollars is. It's still a lot of money. The problem is, relative to how many other things that we're spending billions of dollars on, this doesn't seem like a lot. I mean, we could go through how many other things. If you went through all the announcements that the federal government or provincial governments, all the things that they've promised, a billion here, two for this, you could probably easily find five times as much if you wanted to whittle things down and put it towards healthcare and make it more useful.
3: I think the big difference between this discussion and discussions on this topic in the past, I think the big difference here is the public's opinion. The public opinion has drastically changed, and whether it's and there's been all kinds of polls coming out this week. People are just fed up with healthcare. They don't give a rat's rear end whether it comes from the province, whether it comes from the feds, whether it comes from private, whether it comes from here, there, or the other way. They just want it fixed. And COVID has exposed how how many flaws there are are in this system we used to only boast about. So I think the big difference here, and many people have said this on the show in the last week, you probably heard this on yours too, you know, we all know healthcare is the third rail in, in politics, meaning, uh, you know, if you're on a subway the third rail is yeah, the one that's yeah. electrified and you don't touch it. So I think it's totally different now, and the only reason we're seeing the premiers and the feds even talking about this is because they're getting so much blowback from the public. So when people say they're not sure it's going to change. I think what's really different this time is the public's attitude. And I think, as we've discussed before, the the, the debate, which always comes up, uh, private versus public, U.S. versus Canadian, I think that is as old
10: school as old school can be. And that discussion has to modernize. Well, let me throw one other thing. Let me back up to something you said just a few moments ago, something else that I think people are really tired of, which is the idea of, well, the money, the federal government doesn't want to give the provincial government enough, or the provincial government wants to download onto the municipal government. What seems to be forgotten in every single one of these discussions is it all comes from the same taxpayer. Yeah. It all. So I don't care if it's federal money. I don't care if it's provincial money. I don't care if it's municipal money. It's all we're paying for. It. And you know, every time, Scott, and this is not healthcare, but- Every time we hear a government say, well, you know, uh, like with our LRT discussion, for example, with the LRT discussion, for how long have we heard local officials boast that, well, this is money that's coming from the province. We don't have to pay for this. Okay, that's true. (laughs) But they're making the (laughs) same announcement in Kingston and in Kitchener and in London and in Sudbury and Sault Ste. Marie and Ottawa and Windsor and everywhere else saying you don't have to pay for this. No, we're paying for theirs so they can pay for ours. You're moving the shells around. It sounds like we're getting a deal. It's all one taxpayer. So frankly, I don't care who is the one who is funding health care. I don't want federal bureaucrats and federal politicians boasting, well, look how much more we're giving in the problem. It's us who's paying. It doesn't matter which pocket of the wallet it comes out of. Mm. Scott Radley with us, host of the Scott Radley Show coming up after the 6 o'clock
3: news. You can read him in the Hamilton Spectator. Scott, as always, thanks for the time. Have a great show. You're welcome. And I
10: would like it if they actually did pay it. But that's a different story for another day. (laughs) All right.
0: Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live week afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com.
3: That's it for us. Thanks for listening. As always, we leave it to you, the taxpaying customer, to have the last word.
4: The population of Canada used to be 30 million people. It is now 38 million people. That 8 million people increase has made it uh, almost 30% uh, increase in the population. So the health care as it was is not able to uh, sustain the added 30% of the population. Thank you.